Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Welcome to GodPod. Those of you who have tuned in again, downloaded this podcast and are about to listen to um, this next episode of GodPod. And um, uh, it's me, Graham Tomlin, always here. And uh, we also have, wonderfully, the great old team from the past. Not so old. Well, I don't know. <laughs> Jane is feeling very old today. I'm feeling very old today. Well, yes. Jane, this is a very sad thing. But after a little bit of talking theology, I shall be rejuvenated. You'll come to life. Yeah. Exactly. And we have Michael. We do indeed, yes. We do indeed. In fact, actually, today I am suffering the, the, um, the definition of temptation because as we walked into the Godpod room, there were three very nice cupcakes in the middle of the, um, the table. So we've kind of moved on from biscuits to cupcakes. At which point, Jane and Mike kind of dived into the cupcakes and ate one each. But rather sadly, we are recording this in the middle of Lent and I've given up cake for Lent. So there is oh one dear. cupcake sitting there saying to me, eat me, eat me, and I'm not allowed to. Actually, it's worse than that. There were four cupcakes there between the three of us. So I think they were trying to occasion there really division. There is another one gone. They were going Goodness to sow me. discord. And Who I, ate the other one? Well, I, I, I have not given them up for Lent. Um, I've taken them up for Lent. So <laughs> I'm a bit I had two. to discover yeah, two. there were that many. I'm sure I didn't eat one. <laughs> you ate them all, Mike, didn't you? <laughs> so I'm doing this godpod through gritted teeth. Michael is smiling like a we're, Cheshire cat on the other side. We're doing ours through gummy teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. Anyway, um, we have uh, got a number of juicy questions lined up for us, sent in by um, wonderful listeners like yourself. And uh, just again, as we often do, just encourage you, if you're listening to this, uh, do send uh, your emails into us. Um, and uh, we'd love to ask to answer your questions. So, um the question we, we started off with, there's a couple of questions that have come in here from um, uh, listeners to Godpod, and two of them here are sort of quite similar, and so we thought we'd try to have a go at these ones. The first one comes from um, uh, from Istanbul, from Kaira in Istanbul in Turkey, which is very good. Didn't know we were being listened to in Turkey, but there we are. And uh, the question is, I have a couple of questions in regard to the tradition of Lucifer's fall. So when Lucifer fell, thus becoming Satan, why didn't God just destroy him and the fallen angels there and then? Why allow him to come to earth and assist in the fall of humans? The tree that was a symbol of free will was surely enough. They didn't need to be Satan to attempt them. Uh, or how do we understand that? So there's a question about the fall of Lucifer. And the other question, um, which is from Danny, uh, Danny Rogers, who is known to some of us here as a student at St. Melitus. Uh, and the question is simply this, uh, who or what is Satan? seems like we now have an understanding of Satan that has been developed and refined over 2,000 years of Christian history, particularly in the Middle Ages. Uh, we seem to think of him as a kind of demonic personification of evil, but what does the Bible teach about who or what Satan is? When we talk about being tempted by Satan, what does that actually mean? Is it a demonic creature, a sort of impersonal force? How do we understand Satan? So there's a cluster of questions are there around um the person of Satan and how we understand it. So, um, Michael, you're pretty good on evil. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor Evil. Your specialist subject. <clears throat> uh, well, 
if I can speculate a little bit as to the origins of, of why uh, the belief in Satan arose in the history of Israel, I think, uh, first of all, you start with the development of monotheism, full-blown monotheism. Before that, you had polytheism, lots of people believing in there are lots of different gods. And then it moved to what's known as monolatry, which is uh, people believing in lots of God, but gods, but oh, there's only one that you should worship. And you get bits of that in things like Psalm 82, uh, where Yahweh is a, the, the kind of presiding over the council of the gods. Um, and then it develops into full-blown monotheism. And that's a huge advance in human thinking. But it brings some problems in its wake. And if God, if there's only one God, then you have presumably to attribute everything to him. Uh, and that's a problem because bad things happen as well as good things so that God gets the blame for everything. Uh, now, the next big phase in the development happens when um, Israel's under the Persian Empire. Now, the Persians, of course, believed in a good God and a bad God. Uh, and I, I think what happened is that uh, they thought that, that explains neatly why bad things happen. You just blame it on the bad God. But we can't have two gods because we're monotheists and, and there's a hu that's hugely significant. So they demoted the bad God to being a rebel, not, not divine, not eternal. Um, and this is during sort of intertestamental <coughs> literature, is that this, it? This is, this is okay. uh, yes. In between Old and New Exactly. New um, yep. So after, after the Babylonian exile... Uh, when it gets taken over by um, by the Persian Empire, um, you get this this uh, view developing, and so um, what the, what happens is that they begin to attribute bad things that happen to this other force, not divine, not eternal, uh, but serious and powerful, and you see that going on in the first couple of chapters of the Book of Job. Um, it's actually not God who sends the whirlwind, who sends the Sabaean raiding party, uh, who does all those things to Job. It's it's Satan who does it. And I think they're put, deliberately putting moral distance between uh, God and and suffering. So I think I think that's how it developed. Um, I don't want to talk too much, but I could go on. You're to doing well. Okay, yeah. So you, you see a sort of historical development as to why the figure of Satan kind of emerged as a uh, as a as a personification of evil, or, or as well. I think a bit more than that. that. I yeah. think I think if you're going to attribute bad things that happen in some sense to this figure, <coughs> there's got yeah. to be more than a personification. Yeah. There's got to be some reality behind mm. the language. Mm. Now, exactly what the reality is, mm. uh, who knows? But but mm. there needs to be an intelligent personal being there in some yeah, way yeah 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 I mean, and that's that helps explain why there's much more about satan in the old testament than in, in the new testament than in the old testament there's only three references in the old testament okay uh, uh whereas the new testament's full of talk about evil spirits and mm. satan mm. and the devil and the, everything sure. um i think the, the other reason why for me i think satan I mean, actually, the first thing to say, I think I want to say about Satan is, of course, that he is a created being. Yes. Uh, you know, sometimes in, in popular imagination, God and Satan are sort of opposite characters. Rather if, like in, in the Persian dualism yeah. that he, I think, emerged out of. Exactly, yes. yeah. You know, and, and that was that's actually a, a kind of Christian heresy called Manichaeism, which is one that, that Augustine was attracted to in his early days, but then rejected this idea that the world is 
subject to two gods, basically, a good god and an evil god, who are locked in an eternal battle, both both being eternal, goodness and evil both being eternal. And uh, Augustine felt ultimately that just didn't work. It made evil as powerful as good. Yes. And, and, and ineradicable. It, it, yeah, exactly. If it's, if it's an eternal being, it's going to be an eternal reality. And it posited a god that wasn't really <coughs> worth worshipping because he couldn't do much about evil uh, within the world. And so, um, so you know, clearly within the, the biblical narrative, Satan is always a, a fallen angel. Yes. He is a created being. He's not God. Uh, he's not eternal in the, in the way that God is. So that's the first thing to say about it. But I think the other thing is that, you know, I guess a cruel Christian belief has always been that evil does not exist because of some flaw within the creation. It's not that God made a world and didn't do a very good job and he left a bit of a gap or, you know, there was a crack in it or, you know, there was some sort of mistake. That's why we have evil. In other words, evil does not arise simply from an impersonal sort of mistake in the creation. Actually, it emerges from a part of the creation turning against God in willful disobedience, rebellion, rejection. Um, and I think that's a strong strand of the, of the Christian tradition because you can kind of either have one or the other. It's either an impersonal force, which is not, which is, you know, a flaw within creation or a part of creation willfully turning against the creator. And if you go with that second option, um, then in some ways evil has to have a sort of personal source it seems to me it can't just be an impersonal source it can't be just because if it's impersonal that implies a kind of flaw within the creation which is clearly not what christians say about about creation which is why the logic of it does seem to him to, to say that we have to kind of attach personal agency to evil rather than just a, a vague impersonal sort of flaw and one of the interesting things about that of course is that um is is that that's the the, the sort of um sense of self uh, so the sense of being able to make choices and all that we recognize to be a good thing yes. about humanity so it arises out of something that is part of god's goodness yeah. to us that we really have freedom that we really can um, determine a lot about our our choices and so on and you watch it in small children don't you 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 don't actually want small children who who won't ever rebel because it suggests mm -hmm. they haven't got spirit and intelligence and uh, yes exactly um but you so so we can see that um that it isn't an eternal um evil force that comes out of something good that's just misdirected yeah. and one of the things that augustine um was he realized um that part of what he was looking for in manichaeism this dualistic approach suggesting that good and evil are equal was he was looking for a way of not being responsible for his own actions mm -hmm. He was looking for a way of saying this evil um, is inbuilt, uh, it's at war with good, and I'm just helplessly caught in the middle of it. It's not I who sinned. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and, and in the end, he realised he had to reject that, um, that, that we as moral agents are far more involved in all of this um, than, than we would like um, to admit. And it's one of the things I find absolutely fascinating about the Genesis account of, of the role of the serpent, um, and the role of human choice is it is it's always seemed to me really powerfully psychologically true um both that those human beings as depicted in the genesis story make the choice freely and that they're tempted and that is our experience of evil isn't it both that we do have freedom in relation to it and that we don't entirely um, and i find that um, a, a really powerful description of what's going on evil gets bigger than us although it starts from us and behind that is, a, is, I think, a deeply attractive view of God, which is that he's uncontrolling. 
Yes. He's not somebody who forces people to do what he wants them to do. Um, and we, we talk about people as being control freaks, <coughs> but often oh, reject oh. and think that that's okay for God. Yeah. And actually, yeah. it isn't, and, oh. and he's, he doesn't. And, and that's where our freedom and our significance, I think, largely as, as mm. beings mm. resides. And I suppose that, that's, it is the other thing that you can, the mistake you can make, I think, with talk about Satan and Lucifer, because that can be a way of avoiding our own yes. complicity in evil. Well, it was the devil's fault. Mm. Um, you know, he did it. It wasn't my fault. It was, you, know, you blame all evil on, on, on Satan. And, um, and, and that, you know, I think I want to say there is a, there is a, one of the complexities of, of evil and, and one thing about this I mean Augustine talked about it as a, like a tangled knot it's always something that's very tangled and difficult to disentangle and you have to so you can't understand it it's because it's it doesn't have any kind of logic and reason anyway um, but there is an element of you know we are tempted as you say Jane you know the the, the Genesis story has you know has a deep profound psychological truth to it we are tempted by something beyond ourselves and that something is somehow personal uh, but that doesn't let off let us off the hook. And there's a sense in which I think this is what Augustine comes to is that that ultimately the, you can only really begin to answer the problem of evil when you you face up to your own part in it. That ultimately, you know, you can't blame God, you can't blame Satan, you can't blame other people. That I only begin to come to a an authentic uh, understanding of and approach to the problem of evil when I actually begin with myself mm. and the fact that evil resides within my own heart and that I am one of the causes of evil within the world. And of course Augustine didn't believe that we could utterly control that. He rejected um, the, the, the sort of attitude that okay now once you know what goodness looks like then you have a completely free choice mm. and you should choose good. As you say he recognised that we're much more tangled up than that. Yeah. Um, that uh, And that the only thing that begins to move us towards um, a sense of freedom to choose good things is is loving God more than anything else. Yeah, a more powerful attraction. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and Graham, your point about uh, Satan being a creature mm. means, of course, that he's loved by God, mm. Almighty God, who hates mm. nothing that Thou hast made. Mm. Um, and there, that begins takes us on, I think, to the second question mm. um, about why God didn't just destroy. Uh, why, yes. Well, yes. Yeah. yes, that um, because he loves all that he has made um and there is deeply rooted in people a, a sense that uh satan cannot repent will not repent uh, certainly will not but but i think also the sense that can't that the demons can't repent and that comes from a particular view of, of of catholic theology based upon aristotle's idea that angels are pure spirit hmm. and therefore they're just what they have no parts um, so, unlike us, who when they go have, bad, they just really go they're bad. Ju they're just completely bad, and there's no no bitter than them that can mm. say, "Oh, mm. I, maybe I ought to mm. do something different here. Yeah. Maybe I ought to repent here." Mm. Um, I don't see any particular reason for believing that mm. uh, view. And in fact, biblically, I see one or two minor hints um, that that's not the case. The one is uh, the Colossians one passage talking about the cross availing for all things including thrones, dominions, powers, mm. principalities, all the rest of it. And certainly the um, letters of the book of Revelation uh, in, in chapters 2 and 3, um, which 
call upon the the angel of the church at what's it mm. whatever it is to repent mm. now i know the word angel can also just mean messenger but it would be odd to call upon the postman to repent yeah. <laughs> um so in so far as there are hints uh, within scripture i think it suggests that that the, the demons could repent not necessarily that they will but yep. so why does god allow not why does god not destroy satan when he falls for the same re reason that he doesn't destroy adam and eve when they fall or yeah. us or us when we yeah. Yeah. fall yeah. which so, he wants to win us back yeah. he loves yeah. us he, he he values us he died dies for us and he wants to lure us back into that relationship with him for which we were always in created mm. Mm. So we really like God to be a control freak, provided he's controlling other people, but not us. <laughs> yes, yes, basically. Because <laughs> yeah. I think or Origen believed that Satan would one day be redeemed. Yes. And uh, I'm not sure I can quite go that far, because no. you, you can't quite predict that. And maybe there is a... And but other books of the Book of Revelation suggest yeah. maybe not. And there is a point at which perhaps when you're so wedded to evil and it's become so, you know, you become so attached to it, it almost becomes impossible to turn back i don't know but but i think i think you're right i think in, in principle mm. i think you have to say that it is possible yes even for satan to repent um because because he is a created being and i think at the end of the day you know you can say that there are there are evil acts but there are no completely evil people that's or, or angels right. or beings or, because there's no god does not create anything evil yes he, he only creates what is good and, and if if we understand evil as a corruption of goodness as a the absence of goodness as the destruction of it that's all satan does he can't create anything no. and uh, therefore all that god has created is good yes um it's when that creation turns bad that it, that's what that's when evil happens and so you, you do end up with a surprising conclusion that in principle yes even satan can repent yes. So then what's our response pastorally, theologically, when we are up against a person or a situation who seems that seems absolutely full Irredeemable, of evil? as we talk about it, yeah. 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 I think we need to remind ourselves and others that they are good things that have gone wrong. Still not, loved not by God. Not bad things, still loved by God, mm. still Somehow. wooed by God. Mm. And we might be part of that wooing. Mm. That's a real challenge, isn't it, it in really some is. situations? Yes. It really it's a real is. challenge, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's something we have to hold on to because the the alternative is actually to literally to demonize what may seem different from ourselves, what we do do not like and what actually, you know, sometimes it obviously is what appears to us to be wedded to evil and we can demonize that and, and, and make it into something intrinsically evil and we respond to it with 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 hatred which is not which actually undermines our our doctrine of god doesn't it because then we are saying there is something that is equally yeah equal to god exactly. there, is something there is something that god has made that is that should be hated yeah. and yeah that's contrary to his his very being yeah. but i think there's also a, a really important thing for our own mental health that that it's important we see ourselves as good things that yes. have gone wrong not as bad things mm. and mm. sometimes when we have a kind of huge conviction of sin or whatever which is a good thing in itself to have but we we make it all consuming and we assume that we are bad people yep. that we yep. are bad things yep. and no we're not we are like everything else yeah good things that have gone there bad. are no irredeemably bad people that's right mm. there are people who have gone seriously wrong there are people who have become wedded to evil in a very profound sense perhaps even to the stage where it's almost impossible for them to turn back but there are no irre irredeemably evil people 
that would be to limit the cross yep. and yep. the the yep. extent of God's love yep. that lies that's behind not say that. that. There is no such thing as evil. No, it's not just a thing. There is no such thing as evil acts because there are evil acts. There are profoundly evil acts, which, but the act is different from the person. Mm. I mean, it, it actually does lead us on to another question, which um, uh, is sent on to we're, we're thinking about um, how do we respond to evil? Whether hatred is a is an appropriate response to evil? And I guess the, the question that came in here from. Um, from Paul Moffat from Newfoundland in Canada. Right, well, where I spent a very happy year and a half in Newfoundland. Yeah, I don't know which part of Newfoundland you're from, but um, no, maybe give my, you give my regards to Newfies. There you go. So this is from Jan and Paul Moffat. Um, so we've gone from Turkey to Newfoundland in um, 10 minutes. Uh, and this is a question about the Psalms. And uh, Paul says this, I've been reading through the Psalms. It's brought forward for me an idea that we find throughout the Bible and has never sat particularly well with me, the idea of hatred. The Psalms are not especially shy about expressing hatred, either the hatred of God, as, is in, as in Psalm 5, the boastful will not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the, and the deceitful. Or the hatred of God's people, which is implicitly approved by God, as in Psalm 139. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? So what about these, this idea of hatred, God's hatred? How do we understand that? This idea that God hates all evildoers. What do we, how do we make sense of that idea of God's hatred? Well, interestingly, just as you were concluding on the previous question, uh, um, I was thinking, well, but God does hate evil acts. He does hate injustice. He does hate oppression. He does hate hatred. He does. Uh, you, know, the, the, you shouldn't you should not look at something like Auschwitz and not hate what is being done mm -hmm. and I think God at any rate is able and we need to work towards being able to distinguish between the people doing it and the things that are being done um, we need you know, this is learning to love the sinner but hate the sin and and that's where God perfectly distinguishes between the two I think mm. and in fact you you wouldn't really want a God who didn't hate what is evil and unjust and oppressive. Actually, a God who looked at Auschwitz and said, well, you know... They're, they're doing their best. They're there, dear. Yeah. <laughs> it would actually be a God that you just yeah. really would not want to worship. No. no. It, would, it would be a, a kind of really... You, you'd turn away in disgust from that kind of God. A God mm. who did not hate child abuse mm. and the oppression of the poor and, and poverty and injustice and people who get away with murder and, and all of that. You wouldn't want to worship a God like that. Mm. So people often say, oh, you know, we want a God of, of love, a God who doesn't hate anything or anybody. You know, actually, we don't really want a God like that. You want a God who is implacably opposed to everything that is evil and everything that destroys life and joy and happiness and beauty and undermines everything that, 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 he's, that he's given and created. You want a God who, who hates in that sense. And, I mean, I think the Psalms are, are talking about people who... Um, because they often describe the people who simply don't believe that God has any power, um, who simply believe that what that our choices, our acts, um, are of ultimate significance. And so, to to use a really strong word like hatred, is to set up this this real um, sense of confrontation between 
the the goodness of God mm. and our mm. arrogance and yes. um, assumption that the world is ours to do with mm. as as mm. we like and 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 I and I recognise the discomfort about a word like hatred as um, with a word like wrath. Um, God's wrath about certain kinds of things. I recognise the discomfort. We don't think of those as good things for us to be feeling, um, but that's because we don't feel them with that absolute sense of of, of justice. We tend to feel them about things that make us feel um, that you know not important enough. <laughs> and, and because they are fraught words for us, because of the experience we have of wrath, yeah. which is human wrath, which yeah. is fallen yeah. wrath, which yeah. is capricious, which is um, frightening uh, in, in the wrong sense of the word I think and, sorry the, um, the other angle on this I think of it the question was also about sort of human hatred the psalmists expressing their yeah. hatred of their enemies and so on and um, it reminds me of a friend of mine he, he remember him saying to me you know well I always read those bits and thought oh this is a bit bit off you know and <laughs> can't quite identify with that and you know well, I don't hate my enemies and you know it's called to love our enemies aren't we until he went to, it was actually in South Africa during the apartheid mm. years, and lived in a in a in a township where he, you know, he, he identified with people who were suffering under severe oppression, and abuse and violence, and uh, and the, he said reading the Psalms in that context suddenly took on a huge new meaning for them because actually, uh, when you are it's, it's, it's all right if you're living in a fairly tolerant sort of world where you know, no one's really got it in for you and life goes pretty smoothly and you, you can't imagine hating anyone uh, because no one's oppressing you in any way. But actually when, when you're suffering deep, deep in, in, in justice, those feelings of, of, um, of uh, you know, anger and outrage do rise up. Now, we can always, uh, you always have to be cautious about them because, of course, our... Um, outrage can turn into to a very kind of unhelpful, uh, unhealthy human hatred of the person as opposed to the actual act or the injustice that, that you're suffering. But but I think in those kind of contexts, those psalms mean a lot more, and they and you can I think people can identify with them more than probably we can in the more sort of affluent, easy West where we never have any. We, we don't don't experience so much of that because they're standing up for they they're speaking was absolute power about the God who is just, aren't they? And if God isn't just, then the the world as it is could carry on like this forever and there will never be any point where you have to give a reckoning mm. uh, for what you have mm. done to others. But if God is just and hates injustice, mm. um, that's something that we may mm. have to face up to at some point. Mm. I wonder whether... Because there is a shift between that language of the Psalms and, and Jesus' command to, to love your enemies mm. doesn't mean love what they do, but it does mean to love them. And I wonder whether the, the, the hinge of that change is the cross. That without the cross, we actually are defined by what we do. Uh, it is who we are. It's the cross that prizes us apart mm. from what we do mm, 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 the mm. things that defile us but don't have to define us mm, mm, mm. Uh, and actually that's why Jesus is able to speak mm. differently from the Psalms mm. uh, in a way that does full justice to their horror at e evil and injustice um, but holding on to the divine love 
for all his creatures. And giving us a different choice. I mean, it's interesting that we can still identify the people who are our enemies. We're not pretending they're not. No. But suddenly, because of the cross, because of Jesus, um, the um, the power is now with us in how we respond to that. We can mm. respond differently. Mm. Um, we can't, so that they are not dictating how we will respond to what is done to us. Mm. Though being fallen creatures, we sometimes misconceive who the enemies are. Indeed. And mm. see people as being enemies yeah. who aren't, and yeah. see people who aren't mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as not being who are. Yeah. Which is why, going back to our earlier discussion, the distinction between you know, there are evil acts, but there are no such thing as evil people, yes. irredeemably evil people, is quite a crucial one for, for, for example. And I suppose that... I'm saying literally crucial in some way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. That's right, yeah, it is. In the sense that, you know, we always have to make that distinction. And yes, there are people who have clung on to evil and almost become so possessed, oppressed by it, that it almost feels like the evil has become part of them. Yes. But in principle, that that distinction has to remain in place. Otherwise, we get to the, to the point of actually hating something that God has made. And it's interesting, I'm going to go back to the first question a little bit here, the whole concept of possession suggests that you know we, we can be rid of evil. It can be yep. got out of us. It's not uh, completely entwined yep. Yep. within us. Mm. Yep. Um, it is actually extricable and expellable. Yep. But it might need to be confronted. It might be. So, I mean, I think the... The the, the, I, the problem with the love the love the sinner hate the sin language is that very often when you're confronted with it you can't distinguish yeah. between those. Mm. Uh, so sometimes in order to love the mm. sinner you have to say this is not ex this this will not do we yeah, will yes. not have this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but that is a form of loving the, yeah. the sinner actually yeah. because yeah. that they're worth more than that. Yeah. They're more worth more than their current behaviour. Yeah. I don't think the the parable of Jesus, where he talks about the um, the wheat and the weeds in the field, is a really fascinating one with regard to the, this particular issue. Because you know you've got the the field and the farmer sows good seed in the field. Nothing wrong with the creation. The enemy comes and sows the wheat. Yes. An enemy has done this. Evil enters in the world not because of any flaw in the creation, but because it has come because of a part the of the creation. The work of God is a being opposed. Exactly. But then you've got the, you know, the wheat and the weeds growing together in the field and the farmers, the, the, the workers go to the farmer and say, well, shall we, we pull up the weeds? And he says, no, 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 leave them to grow together because if you pull up the weeds, you'll pull up the wheat with them. Mm. Uh, but there will one day come a day when the harvest will, will be taken and they will be divided. So and I, that's a very profound story, I think, on, on the, the, the relationship between good and evil within the world. That evil does not come from the creation. It comes in subsequent to it as a, as a corruption of the creation. Um, that evil and goodness are intertwined within this world in such a way that it's almost impossible sometimes to tell them apart or to distinguish them very easily, but they are different. But it gives you the hope that one day they will be harvested and they will be divided, but that's not something we can do very easily. Yeah, that's not our job, is and it? And our attempts to try to kind of get rid of evil are always a little bit dangerous because we can't do that. And that's, that's you know, we can do what we can to kind of prize them Limit. apart. But mm -hmm. yes. Exactly, yeah. Just as a postscript to this, I mean, the language of hatred... Um, there is, of course, that, that, that bit in Scripture where it talks about how you know, where Jesus says, I mean, where um, God says, um, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And it's in that context, it seems to be that that, that sort of language 
doesn't mean that he actually hates Esau, because actually he blesses Esau a lot. But Jacob is the number one, the chosen one, the one who is chosen for God's purposes. And so, so that says it's, it's almost in that context, it's like, you know, well, Jacob is the one who's been chosen for God's purposes. That doesn't mean he hates Esau, but it's just that he's, you know, he, he has a different role within the order of creation. And yeah. so there is a, that's a different form of the language. I don't think hate It's a covenantal form of the language, isn't it? Yeah, is saying, exactly. This, this is where the covenant's going. That's right. But he still has plans, purposes, yeah. uh, and blessing for exactly. the, one, the one who's not fulfilling yeah. that particular role. And if, if that's a very odd one, isn't it? Because it's actually, Jacob behaves much worse than Esau. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yes. Well, I mean, this has been a rather gloomy God Pod because we've done <laughs> Satan, Lucifer, hatred, and all things like that. So to lighten the thing slightly, we did at talk the about end, cake. Uh, we did talk about cake yeah. slightly at the beginning. So, so having started well, so let's we will end well. well. Although that was tempting for Graham, so maybe I know, not it wasn't good. good. It was yeah. good temptation as well. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Depends on, depends on what you're on your, on your angle. <laughs> um, this is one from Ben Schmidt Deal in Michigan and USA. So Turkey, Canada. Canada and Michigan. That's what we've gone to today. And uh, it starts off by saying, I am assuming Michael looks as much like John Cleese as he sounds. Well, interestingly enough, um, I went to the same college that John Cleese went to, uh, yeah, Downing he, College. In, he in denies Cambridge. it, apparently. He, he, well, he denies it whenever the <laughs> development office asks him for money. Because he doesn't want to be at the same college as Mike Lloyd. <laughs> well, and, and subsequently for that reason as well. And they're, yeah. they're about the same height as well, probably, aren't they? John Cleese is very tall. Yeah, yes, so and we probably have a similar kind of motion, which John Cleese describes as being like a, a cross between a hovercraft and a giraffe. <laughs> yeah, that sounds familiar. Very good. I can see your imaginations going wild. <laughs> anyway, this is a little question right at the end of our God pod. Um, uh, knowing that God created us with this strange thing that we call a sense of humour, may we assume that he also has one and perhaps really could be chuckling at some moments of human frailty. Maybe God might laugh at God pod every now and again. You know? <laughs> Probably more the theology than the jokes. Yeah, that's that's right, yeah. So does God have a sense of humour? Can God be light-hearted at times? Well, Jesus clearly is. There quite a lot of Jesus's parables that are uh, that have a very strong sense of ri the ridiculous in them and the, the um, and if if um, mm. Jesus is camels our, going through the eyes of yeah, needles yeah, for example yeah um, uh, and uh, so if if Jesus is our best vision of God then yes I'm sure God has a sense of humor of course one of the problems is that humor is quite time specific culture specific isn't mm. it it's quite difficult i mean you look back at some of those worthy punch cartoons of the 19th century you find it very <laughs> difficult to see what the joke was yeah. um having said that you can watch a shakespeare comedy and, and still find it incredibly yeah. funny so it's, it's difficult to work so there may out. be all kinds of jokes in the new testament that we just don't get well there might i'm yeah. pretty sure that that quite a lot of the parables um, were written down by somebody with no sense of humour. Yeah. So, so they, you know, the, the, zeroed the, out the, uh, yeah, the humour that was in Yes, them. all the funny bits. It's, it's, yeah. So yeah. you imagine G Jesus saying to Matthew, it's the way you tell them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do find it hard to imagine Jesus not laughing somehow. Yeah. You know, yes. Everything about him seems, you know, if he is the full, complete picture of what humanity is, humour and laughter is so much part of who we are, that it would be rather odd if he didn't. And there's something about a sense of proportion. Humor, sense of humor is, is close to a sense of yeah. proportion, as you say, a sense of the ridiculous. Mm. Um, and he was clearly such an attractive person. Yeah. Again, it's very hard to imagine such a variety of people mm. finding him so attractive if he had no sense of humor. Very serious. I mean, think of <laughs> there are many different kinds of humor, aren't there? There's, there's satire, there's irony, there's 
slapstick. There's puns. Puns. Don't forget puns. Yeah, you like puns. I like puns. <laughs> and actually, there's a lot of all those things in the Bible. It seems to yes. be the prophets are always uh, satirizing the the. Um, you know the pagans were saying they you know you know they make a block of wood and they go down they put it upright and they bow down to it and the wind blows over over and you know it's it's all actually quite it's, it's comedy basically and the yeah. book of Jonah yeah exactly <laughs> so I think our conclusion is that yes definitely yeah. God has a sense of humour we hope he does good anyway well I think we've reached the end of this God Pod um, we've ranged far and wide across the world sorted so topics. many things yes. Yes. Cake. A bit of a joke in itself, wasn't it? <laughs> Cake, use of earth, <laughs> hatred, and a sense of humour. So it's um, goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Bye. That was God Pod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.